Written in 1780 on a commission from the Bavarian court, Mozart's Idomeneo represents a high point and one of the last prominent examples of opera seria. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Kyle Homewood. The Met's final performance of Idomeneo this season will be broadcast live in HD to theaters around the world, Saturday, March 25, 2017. Matthew Polinsani is singing the title role, with a cast that includes Alice Coote, Nadine Sierra, and Elza Vandenhaver, with James Levine on the podium. Here is Met Guild lecturer and my podcast co-host, Naomi Baratera, to share some insights on this lesser-known Mozart gem. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for our Opera Outlook's pre-performance lecture series on this very chilly March evening. Our opera for today is Idomeneo by the great Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. This is a work that many have described as Mozart's first operatic masterpiece. He had written several other operatic works before this on smaller-scale commissions, such as La Finta Semplice, Mitridate Re di Ponto, La Finta Giardiniera, Lucio Silla, and Il Re Pastore. But this work is heralded as the first to show a great growth and evolution in his musical maturity and a coherence and attention to dramatic detail that surpassed everything else he had written up to this point. For me, Idomeneo foreshadows much of the operatic innovations Mozart would bring to full fruition in his collaborations with Lorenzo da Ponte. It is a pre-echo, if you will, or foreshadowing of what is to come. Here, Mozart dabbles in stretching the boundaries of traditional operatic forms and imbuing static operatic stereotypes with more three-dimensional personalities, emotional depth, and pathos, bringing a humanity to the opera stage that would continue to grow and blossom in his later works. Idomeneo is also very much a hybrid of influences, restrictions, and cultural connections that are best understood when we delve a little bit deeper into the time and place of its creation. So in the rest of our time together, we're going to take a look at the creation and commissioning of the work, familiarize ourselves with the plot and the opera characters, discuss musical elements of the work so we can better understand the style, and discuss how this opera blends together traditional, innovative, and mythological elements. But before we dive into all of that, a quick note about the production. The production you are going to see this season at the Met is the exact same production created for the Metropolitan Opera premiere of this work in 1982. It was designed by Jean-Pierre Ponnel and had maestro James Levine at the podium. In the Met premiere, Luciano Pavarotti sang the title role, with Ilana Kotrubash singing Ilia, Federica von Stada singing Idamante, and Hildegard Behrens singing Elettra. This season, our cast is also wonderfully star-studded, with Matthew Polanzani singing Idomeneo, Nadine Sierra singing Ilia, Alice Kut singing Idamante, and Elsa Vandenhever singing Elettra. All of the musical examples in this lecture are drawn from Met Opera footage, either from that original production or production since then, and some rehearsal footage of the current cast, so all together you will get a really good sense of what the production looks and sounds and feels like. Now let's turn our attention towards the commissioning and creation of the work. Mozart received a commission for a new opera in 1780 from Karl Theodor, who was at that time the Elector of Bavaria, and it was for the upcoming Munich Carnival celebrations. Although this was a long-awaited commission for Mozart, it was not his first encounter with the Munich court. He actually made his first appearance there in 1762 for a performance on his sixth birthday. Scholars believe it was his first long-distance trip away from Salzburg, his home, as a child. 
He returned to Munich the next year and performed for Elector Maximilian III as his first major stop on the Mozart's Grand Tour of Europe. From Munich, the Mozart family made their way to Paris, where the young musical prodigy played for Madame Pompadour, and then on to London, where Mozart performed in several royal engagements and met Johann Christian Bach, the son of Johann Sebastian Bach. This grand tour took them all the way to the Netherlands and back again through Paris and Munich before making it home to Salzburg three years later. In several trips that followed over the next 15 years, Mozart tried to network as much as possible in Munich, hoping to secure himself a good job, preferably one that involved opera composing. In his letters, he makes several mentions in the years leading up to 1779 of his incredible longing to write an opera. He also attended a great deal of operas at this time, and in his travels, he fell in love with a young soprano, Aloysia Weber. A serious relationship with Aloysia never really materialized as she married the painter Josef Long while Mozart was on a job-hunting trip in Paris, but she would eventually end up as Mozart's sister-in-law as Mozart later fell in love with and married her younger sister, Constanza, in 1782. During the whole time that Mozart was job-hunting in Munich, Mannheim, Paris, and other places, he was building a network of acquaintances that would eventually pay off in getting him his long-desired opera commission. He became very good friends with the tenor Anton Raff, and perhaps most importantly, he became friends with Christian Kannebich, one of the Munich court musical directors. It is believed that Raff and Kannebich put in a good word on Mozart's behalf, which led to him winning this commission for Idomeneo, and it was the most important opera commission of the year, the biggest operatic event that happened in Munich. We don't know how much Mozart was paid for the work, although our best educated guesses essentially amount to not very much for the time, but we do know that the choice of librettist was left up to him, and he went with Giambattista Varesco, whom Mozart had worked with in the past in Salzburg, and with whom his father, Leopold, was also very good friends. What is argued over still is whether or not Mozart chose the story and source material himself or whether it was given to him. It was common practice for the time for the commissioning party to be the one that chooses the story or source material, and then it was the librettist's job to set the story in poetic text for the composer. In this case, the libretto is drawn from French sources, a text by Antoine Danchet, which had then been turned into a tragédie lyrique, which was a type of theatrical operatic stage work by André Campra and performed in Paris in 1712. Danchet's version of the story and Campra's opera are both connected with the writing of a French novelist by the name of Fenelon, Archbishop of Cambrai, specifically his Les Adventures de Télémache, which was published in 1699. Some scholars have argued that the choice of the Idomeneo story could have come from Mozart himself, and the reasoning is largely based on circumstantial connections between the plot of the story and events in Mozart's life at the time. The years leading up to 1780, when he got the commission, were not happy ones for Mozart. He had lost his mother in 1778 while he was away in Paris with her, and this put his relationship with his father on very tense, uneasy ground. Mozart also longed to secure a job outside of Salzburg. He longed to compose operas, while his father wanted him to commit to a secure job, whether or not it was at the Salzburg court or not, and work his way up from there. Added to this, Aloysia Weber rejected Mozart's advances and married another man, so he experienced loss, rejection, and a tense father-son relationship all at once, all in the two years that lead up to this commissioning, and all of which play significant parts in the story of Idomeneo. So we don't know for sure if Mozart chose the story or if it was given to him, but we do know that it was officially approved and work on the opera began to move forward. And as work moved forward, Mozart had the best of the best resources at his disposal. Munich's orchestra was considered the best in Europe at the time, and he was sure to be given a stellar cast of singers. 
Given composing practices of the time, Mozart began by writing out the recitatives first, and he left the writing of the arias until he could hear and work with the singers in person in the weeks leading up to the premiere in order to tailor the music to each individual voice. There is a huge amount of back and forth that exists between Mozart and Varesco in letters, as Mozart had a very strong idea about what he wanted dramatically in this work. There are times when he tells Varesco to cut down the recitatives because he is sure that the audience is going to get bored because they're so long. He also, at times, asks the ordering of the arias, choruses, and recitatives to be changed to better suit the dramatic coherence of the story, and he even took issue with specific word choices of Varesco's because of the undesirable vowel sound that, re- that was required of the singer. This was unprecedented for the time and surely drove Varesco absolutely up the wall. The changes they collectively made to the source material can be summarized by five main points as outlined by Martin Mueller in his article Escape from D Minor, Mozart's Encounter with Ancient Tragedy in Idomeneo. One, most of the mythological machinery is removed, save the role of Neptune. Two, the five-act structure of the original is turned into three acts, but the pivotal events of the source material remain. Three, the text was rewritten to fit the Italian conventions of recitative and aria. Four, there was erotic competition between father and son in the source material that is removed in the opera. And five, the opera ends happily, which is essentially Mozart and Varesco's way of adapting the tragic tale to public tastes. This is called lieto fine, a happy ending, and was standard requirements or elements of an Italian opera in the 17th and 18th century, so most tragic stories, whether drawn from mythology or history, were adapted to have a happy ending. Altogether, the resulting text pleased Mozart, and the opera made its premiere on January 29, 1781, at the Munich residence, which was the seat of government and the residence of the Bavarian electors, dukes, and kings. The first performance was considered a success, but it seems like audiences were much more strongly taken with the set pieces and plot devices more so than the music itself. One press review of Opening Night stated, quote, the author, composer, and translator are all natives of Salzburg. The decors, among which the view of the port and Neptune's temple, were outstanding, were masterpieces by our renowned theater designer, court counselor Lorenzo Quaglio, and everyone admired them tremendously. So no mention of Mozart by name or the beauty of the music whatsoever. In total, there were three performances of Idomeneo in Munich, followed by one concert performance of the opera in Vienna in 1786, for which Mozart made some changes, including switching the title role from being a tenor to a castrato to accommodate a new cast. But other than that, the opera was never performed again in Mozart's lifetime. So why did this opera not really take off in Mozart's time? When Mozart received the commission, the directive was to write an opera seria. Opera seria dominated the opera stage in the early 1700s, and there was a strict divide between serious operatic topics, hence the term opera seria, and comical opera topics, also known as opera buffa. Opera seria was structured around a series of conventions codified in the Baroque era, where operas were largely structured around recitatives, speech-like singing that moved the plot forward, and arias, more reflective singing and melodic singing that allowed characters to dwell and reflect on an emotion, with only the occasional opera chorus interspersed. By the time Mozart got the commission for Idomeneo, the public taste for opera seria had begun to wane because, as you can imagine, the strict conventions left little room for dramatic innovation. But the rulers of the time liked opera seria because of its noble themes, and Mozart was determined to make this commission work. He still incorporates traditional elements of opera seria into the structure of Idomeneo, but we can see that he's beginning to insert little breaks in the conventions. He tried to create more connection from one aria or scene to the next, leaving little breaks for long audience applause or for a big dramatic exit. 
There is also an incredible integration of the chorus throughout the opera and extremely innovative uses of the orchestra. Here, Mozart is harnessing all the power of the world-class ensemble that he had at his disposal to reach very specific dramatic goals. There are robust roles for the brass instruments, strongly paired with the arrival of the god Neptune, and he even uses brass mutes, and Mozart had to specifically get those mutes shipped to Munich from Salzburg to create a kind of geospatial sound effect. Essentially, he wanted to create the sound of horns far off in the distance, getting closer and closer. He also utilizes wind instruments to create fierce and dramatic storm sequences that play an integral role in the story. So here's an example from the end of Act 2 so you can hear this kind of musical storm that Mozart creates. traditional opera seria, there is usually no supernatural elements in the story. Characters are usually historical, think of Handel's Giulio Cesare, and there are usually little to no ensembles in the score, only recitatives and arias with the occasional duet. In Idomeneo, the story breaks with this tradition of opera seria with the incorporation of a mythological god, the god Poseidon or Neptune, and Neptune is a big catalyst in the dramatic action. Though some of these innovative elements can be attributed to the French source material of the text, Mozart's genius touch is what really transforms this story from ordinary to extraordinary, and makes it relevant to both the ideals of its time and for generations afterwards. As the writer Christian McAteer states, quote, this is an opera in which fate conspires against man and man defies the gods. But, unlike in the original myth, and indeed the 1712 libretto on which Mozart's Idomeneo was based, man is not brought to a reckoning by the gods, but spared by reasoning. This is not the Greek drama that we know, but rather a drama of the Enlightenment. So before we go any further, we should really familiarize ourselves with the plot of the opera. Those of you who have heard me lecture before know that I enjoy making little plot charts to help explain character connections and interactions throughout the story. Since this is a rather complicated plot with a core of four characters and several peripheral figures, this was the perfect opera to stretch my pedagogical wings a little bit and take my plot charts to the next level. So what I did was I turned the chart into a narrated video that uses various icons and arrows and things like that to help explain their connections. And so here we're going to watch the video which essentially tells the whole story of the opera within five to six minutes. And then we're going to talk about some musical elements that I allude to in the course of this retelling. So here is the plot of Idomeneo in a nutshell. Act 1. The opera is set in ancient times following the Trojan Wars. The title character, King Idomeneo of Crete, was able to defeat the Trojans by teaming up with the Greeks. Now that Troy has fallen, he gets in his boat to go home to Crete, and he has captured the Trojan princess Elia and has sent her ahead of him as a prisoner. In Crete, Elia has fallen in love with Idomante. Idomante returns the affection, but since Idomante is the son of Idomeneo, and therefore the son of her enemy, they are both hesitant to admit their love for one another. To try and convince Elia of his love for her without really coming out and saying it, Idamante releases all the other Trojan prisoners. Electra, daughter of the Greek king Agamemnon, who is also spending some time in Crete as she waits out the war, realizes what this goodwill gesture really means and becomes jealous of Elia because she is in love with Idamante and he does not return the affection. 
She is also incensed that Itamante just released the majority of their mutual enemy prisoners, and she is afraid that he might desire Elia as a bride. Next scene. Remember this whole time that Itamante is releasing Trojan prisoners and trying to convince Elia of his love without really coming out and saying it, and Elettra being jealous? Remember that Idomeneo is on his way back to Crete. But before his boat reaches the shores of his home, a violent storm arises, and the water begins to tear his ship apart. Idomeneo cries out to Neptune for help, vowing that if Neptune spares his life, he will sacrifice the first person he meets after being safely washed ashore. So Neptune makes sure that Idomeneo gets washed ashore, and meanwhile, Idomante, hearing his father's ship has gone down, rushes to the shores of Crete to see for himself what has transpired. So, of course, the first person that Idomeneo sees is his son, Idomante. At first, they don't even recognize each other because they've been apart for so long, but when Idomeneo puts all the puzzle pieces together, he is terrified because he realizes that in order to keep his vow to Neptune, he now has to sacrifice his own son, so he tells Idomante to stay away from him and runs away in confusion. Hurt and confused by his father's rejection, Idomante leaves, while the oblivious crowds on the shore celebrate Neptune's mercy as the storm passes. Moving on to Act 2. Idomeneo confides in Erbace, telling him about the vow he made to Neptune and the predicament he is now in, seeing as he has essentially vowed to sacrifice his own son. Erbace says, I have an idea. Why don't you put Idomante on a boat with Elettra and have him escort her back to Greece, so that he is nowhere to be found when Neptune comes looking for his sacrifice? Idomeneo thinks this is a fantastic idea and begins making plans when Elia arrives on the scene. Even though Idomeneo is her sworn enemy, she is suddenly trying to make amends with him, hoping that it will allow her to pursue a life with Idomante. Idomeneo is confused at her sudden change of heart, but doesn't really change any of his plans of sending Idomante away, basically exiling him, still fearing his vow to Neptune. This makes Elettra very happy because she gets a whole boat ride across the sea with Idomante all to herself, with Elia, her rival, left behind. But Neptune is very displeased with this plan, and as Idomante and Elettra's ship pulls out of the harbor, he conjures up another storm and sends a giant sea monster to attack the ship. Idomante and Elettra survive, but nobody leaves Crete that day. Idomeneo admits to his people part of the whole mess he has gotten himself into with Neptune, but not the whole truth, leaving out the whole I have to sacrifice my son part. The act ends with Idomeneo expressing the horrible, confusing situation he is in, and his royal subjects running for cover from the continued storm. Act 3. The act opens with Elia singing of her love for Idomante. When he appears, he tells her that he is going to fight the sea monster. Breaking up their private moment, Elettra and Idomeneo arrive. Idomante asks his father to be honest about why he is sending him away. Idomeneo provides a very evasive answer, and Elettra is fuming because she can still see that Idomante only has eyes for Elia. The four characters sing a beautiful quartet, all expressing their personal hopes, fears, and deep dark desires. It is an amazing musical moment, so definitely watch for it. The scene changes, and Idomeneo is once again in conversation with Arbace. Arbace tells him that the whole countryside is up in arms about Idomeneo's unfulfilled vow to Neptune. He fears that if Idomeneo continues to try and get out of keeping up his end of the bargain, the people of Crete will revolt and chaos will ensue. Then, Idomante runs in, informing everyone that he has slain the sea monster. But when Idomeneo reveals that that doesn't really solve their problem, Idomante begins to put the pieces together and realizes that Neptune is still wanting a life sacrificed. Idomeneo reveals that Idomante accidentally became the chosen sacrificial candidate and all the people are horrified. But noble Idomante offers himself willingly, and Elia in turn says that she will stick with him to the death, not being able to bear the thought of parting with him. As Idomeneo is thinking all of this through, trying to find a way out, Neptune finally chimes in, and basically says that he will show mercy to everyone, involving no sacrifice, if Idomeneo agrees to abdicate his throne, and Prince Idomante is named king, and marries his beloved and faithful Elia, making her queen. Everyone is happy about this, except Elettra. Remember, she is still in love with Idamante, jealous of Elia, and is driven to the brink of insanity as all of her hopes and dreams of a life with Idamante are crashing down around her. She sings a mad scene where she expresses her rage and sings of longing for death instead of enduring such torment. This doesn't really change much in the end though, as Idamante and Elia are together, Idamaneo willingly abdicates his throne, and basically all the people are happy and peace is restored. Now that we've covered the plot, let's circle back to some musical elements of the work, and we're going to focus on three main things. Large-scale musical structures, the opera seria conventions that we're going to hear, and then how Mozart begins to break away from these strict opera seria conventions and does more innovative things. One of the interesting musical elements that is much discussed in the musicological literature surrounding this opera is the choice of keys for each musical moment and the extra musical meaning that Mozart associated with them. 
It was very common in the late Baroque and into the classical era for composers to associate specific meaning to certain key signatures in Western classical music. The history behind this is far more nuanced than we have time to delve into here, but essentially, composers and theorists felt that certain keys expressed certain emotions or symbolic elements most effectively. Theories of key association existed and were discussed by writers long before Mozart and endured long after Mozart into the Romantic era. For example, in Christian Schubart's 1806 treatise, he writes that C major is the key of purity and innocence. E flat major is the key in which one has an intimate conversation with God. And A major is associated with innocent declarations of love, while A minor is associated with pious womanliness. Different composers and writers had different ideas. Some of those ideas overlap, some don't, and Mozart has his own schema that seems to have coalesced in Idomeneo and then remains constant in all of his operatic writing thereafter. They are also outlined by Mueller in his article that I mentioned before, and they are as follows. D major is the key of human power and of good government and generally loves a good parade. D minor is the key of revenge or of human power gone wrong. G major is the key of natural man. G minor is the key of human grief and alienation or isolation. B flat major is the key of enlightened humanity. And A major is the lover's key. A minor is reserved for exotic occasions. E major is the key of deceptive appearances or disguises. E flat major and C minor are usually third person keys or cosmic keys. So this is whenever some kind of supernatural element speaks, it's usually in E flat or C minor. C major and F major tend to be switching keys or movable meaning, so they really have no specific or special character. Now, scholars, as you can imagine, have gone through great pains to map out how the progression of keys in Mozart's operas map to these extra musical meanings, and Idomeneo is no different. We won't delve into the minutia of it here, but suffice it to say that there is an underlying structure which Mozart is utilizing and drawing upon in the realm of key associations in order to maximize and underpin the emotional thrust of each scene. So it should come as no surprise that Elettra's rage arias are in the key of D minor. Or when Idamante frees all of the Trojan prisoners, he gives this decree in the key of B-flat major, the key of enlightenment. And the prisoners celebrate this merciful turn of events in the key of G major. Elia's first aria, when she is expressing her grief and despair at her imprisonment, is in the key of G minor. Idamante and Elia's love duet is in A major. And when the chorus sings of the terrifying storm at sea caused by Neptune, they are singing in C minor. And when all ends well in a celebratory finale, the ending of the opera happens in D major. Now, if we turn our attention to the very beginning of the opera, we begin to immediately encounter a musical element that breaks with conventions of its time and is considered extremely innovative and that is the occurrence of what scholars refer to as reoccurring motifs. Now you are probably thinking, what? Wait a minute, Mozart composed with reoccurring motifs? No, that's impossible, that's so Wagnerian. That's something we get with Verdi and Strauss and beyond, not Mozart, he's way too early. How is this even possible? But the truth is, reoccurring motives or little bits of melody, recognizable musical snippets that come back again and again throughout the opera were a compositional strategy or technique that existed before Wagner, even before Mozart. It just wasn't incredibly popular or well-developed as a compositional technique in that time. So though it is true that is not typical of Mozart's overall output, he doesn't use this technique a lot, it is a bit of an anomaly in Idomeneo that certainly broke with popular conventions of the time. 
And as you can imagine, when musical material from the overture in Idomeneo pops up throughout the whole opera, scholars cannot help themselves but to start debating what it means and how those reoccurring pieces of music are functioning. So this simple explanation is this. Yes, there are musical motives or gestures, little bits of recognizable melody that seem to reoccur throughout the rest of the opera, and they are introduced to us in the overture. So I want to draw our attention to one of the most dramatic and noticeable bits of these reoccurring motifs, and that is what scholars have called Idomeneo's reconciliation motif, or some scholars call it the sacrifice motif, and other scholars call it the Idomante motif. So right away you can see that we don't all agree on exactly what this reoccurring musical motive means. But nonetheless, it is there. So this motive occurs in the ninth bar of the overture, and this is what it sounds like. Now, if we back up a little bit, we're going to play from the beginning of the overture so you can hear where this motive first falls in the larger flow of things. As writer Julian Rushton explains, quote, Some 30 passages in Idomeneo can be identified as variants of this motif, but several are remote in shape and come at insignificant moments. It would be hard to maintain that the motif has any iconic significance. Nothing about it implicitly suggests a sacrifice or Idomante being a victim. Nevertheless, its sheer frequency permits it to accrue signifying capability and the effect of its appearance in Act 3, when Idomeneo finally names his son as victim, is overwhelming. So like many musical debates, the verdict is still out on exactly what the meaning of this motive is, but how much we can read into it in its reoccurrence, still debated throughout the opera, but I wanted to draw your attention to it so that you can listen for it as you experience the performance and perhaps think about whether or not you find that it accrues a kind of dramatic significance for you. Now, as we move into more musical examples from the opera, it is important for us to talk more about recitatives and arias, since recitatives and arias dominate opera seria. So this is Mozart adhering to musical conventions and drawing on tradition. And because the recit aria structure was so strongly a part of this style, it's important for us to cover the different types of recits and arias that we're going to encounter. So beginning with recitative, there are two main types. Recitative seco, meaning dry, and recitative accompagnato, meaning accompanied. Essentially, in recitative seco, there is only one or two instruments accompanying the singer, usually a harpsichord or a stringed instrument, and overall it has a very dry sound, and the instrumentalists are mostly elaborating on chords given to them underneath the singer's text. Here is an example of a recitative seco from Idomeneo, so you can hear what this sounds like. Principessa, 
With recitative accompagnato, the whole orchestra is involved in the recitative, playing a very dramatic role, painting a musical picture of what the singer is describing, or reflecting the singer's emotional state. Sometimes in recitative accompagnato, there seems to be a back and forth between singer and orchestra, like they're having a conversation, or sometimes the orchestra punctuates what the singer is talking about. So here's an example of a recitative accompagnato from Idomeneo, so you can hear what this fuller sounding recitative sounds like. Inganno reciproco l'amore Troppo i davanti a shor quelle catene sollecito tu fosti Ecco il delitto che in te punisce il cielo Si sia Nettuno il figlio now, in both cases, recitative seco and recitative accompagnato, the function of the recitative is moving the story forward quickly and usually leads into some kind of aria. And in opera seria, there are many kinds of arias. So to give you an idea of just how many arias were normal at the time, a very prolific librettist of the 18th century in Italy and a contemporary of Mozart once wrote, this is Carlo Goldoni, he said, The three principal personages of the drama ought to sing five arias each, two in the first act, two in the second, and one in the third. The second actress and the second soprano can only have three, and the inferior characters must be satisfied with a single aria each, or two at the most. The author of the words must take care that two pathetic or melancholy arias do not succeed one another. We must distribute with the same precaution the bravura arias, the arias of action, the inferior arias, and the minuets and rondeaus. He must, above all things, avoid giving impassioned arias, bravura arias, or rondeaus to inferior characters. So let's start with one of the aria types that Goldoni mentions, and that is the aria di bravura. This is a type of aria that usually features a fast tempo and serves the primary purpose of displaying a singer's agility, range, or skill of execution. These are the mic drop moments in opera, and one of the greatest bravura arias in Idomeneo comes in Act 2 and is sung by the title character. In Fuar del Mar, Idomeneo sings of how even though he is safely back on shore, he still feels an impending sense of danger, and he wonders if he is in more danger now than when he was on his boat in the middle of the storm making a deal with Neptune, about to be shipwrecked. Listen for the incredible virtuosity called for by the singer, and here is Matthew Polanzani singing Fuar del Mar.
Another type of aria that we find in abundance in Idomeneo is the aria cantabile, a smooth, gentle melody that, combined with a simple accompaniment, gave ample opportunity for ornamentation by the singer. The text usually deals with a gentle or tender subject and can show a delicate, angelic nature or a kind of tragic sadness and pathos. Our example of an aria cantabile comes from Act 3 of Idomeneo, when Ilia is essentially asking the breezes and the trees to send Idamante the message of her love or carry her thoughts of love to him and let him know that she will remain faithful to him even though they are separated or far from each other. And perhaps the most exciting aria type that we have in this opera is the rage aria, which is designed to do exactly as it is named, express the intense rage a character is feeling and really vent all of those emotions that can often be fury, anger, sadness, turmoil, uh, loss, bitterness, all of these things kind of bound up together and just let out in a rush of musical expression. So it is also known as an aria agitata, an aria infuriata, aria di strapito, or an aria di smania. All of these names refer to the rage aria type. Usually, musically, these types of arias feature short note values, minor harmonies, pulsing, driving rhythms, angry text, and because of the sheer speed that is demanded of the singer, there's usually very little extra ornamentation that a singer adds that is not already in the score. They are certainly very virtuosic arias to sing, very difficult to sing, but it's not the type of thing where there's a lot of space or time for the singer to elaborate and improvise. There are two really fantastic rage aria moments in Idomeneo, both by Elettra's character, and because Elettra gets these rage arias, there is a lot written about her in musicological literature discussing does her character evolve, does she ever break out of this rage aria mold, and so that's a kind of thing to think about as you're watching the opera, what her types of music, types of arias tell us about her character and her development. So we're going to listen to a little bit of both of these fantastic arias. The first one is in Act 1. It's called Tutto nel cor Vicento. And here, Elettra is jealous and angry that Idamante loves Elia because Elettra sees Elia both as a lowly prisoner and also as a big rival for Idamante's affections. So she vows revenge on the two lovers. And for our example, we're going to listen to Elza van den Hever, who is our Elettra at the Met this season. Oh. 
The most famous rage aria in Idomeneo comes at the very end of the work, and it is often referred to as Electra's mad scene, where she declares that she is tortured beyond belief by all that has transpired and the loss of Idomante's love, that she might as well just die. Let's listen to Hildegard Behrens bring this to life, and this is from the original 1982 Met broadcast. exploration of the opera this evening, I want to talk about one more way that Mozart breaks with opera seria tradition in Idomeneo, and that is in how he begins experimenting with ensembles. For those of you who love Mozart's operas, you could probably name several iconic or fantastic ensemble moments in the later works that he collaborates with Lorenzo de Ponte to create. And there is a fantastic quartet in Idomeneo that foreshadows the ensemble work that he will later achieve in La Nozze di Figaro, Così fan tutte, Don Giovanni, and his more mature operas. In these ensembles, he attempts to portray the individual emotions of each character, but everyone is singing simultaneously. In Idomeneo, this ensemble comes in Act 3, and this is where our four main characters, Idomeneo, Idamante, Eletra, and Ilia, are all on stage at the same time. Idomeneo is tortured by his vow to Neptune that means that he has to sacrifice his own son. Idamante, unaware of all of this, believes his father is rejecting him. Ilia is in love with Idamante, but is tortured by the fact that he is the son of her sworn enemy. And Eletra, who also loves Idamante, is jealous of his affection for Elia and desperate to win his love. We are going to begin with the end of the duet because this is actually a fairly long scene. And so this is an example of how Mozart begins playing with ensembles, but also begins working on that kind of through line or thread, weaving one dramatic moment into the next to create a longer scene structure. So we're going to first hear the end of a duet between Ilia and Idamante, where they are admitting their love for each other. And then this transitions into a short recitative that leads right into the quartet when all four characters are on stage. Apparently, this quartet was a moment that Mozart could never listen to without being brought to tears. And before we listen, there's a great description of it by writer Kate Hopkins. So I'm going to read this to you, and then we're going to listen to this whole scene unfold. So Hopkins writes, quote, Idamante is the first to sing. His melody is resigned and dignified, but uneasy syncopations in the strings convey his agitation as he declares that he will wander alone until he dies. Elia's response moves the music to warmer harmonies as she promises with radiant lyricism that where you die, I will die too. A stormy mood returns as Idomeneo and Eletra enter to similar music but with contrasting emotions. Idomeneo longs to die and Eletra calls for revenge. The lovers attempt to soothe Idomeneo, singing in sweet, consonant thirds, but soon they and he agree on painful dissonances on the word sofrir to suffer. 
that to suffer more would be impossible. Electra joins in, and as their voices weave together and around each other, dramatically converging, the four unite in their belief that no one ever endured a harsher fate than this. The quartet culminates in a despairing coda in which the singers imitate each other in rapid, rising phrases before converging on the last two words of the phrase, no one has ever endured such pain. Mozart reserves a last surprise for the final bars as the singers break off abruptly and Idamante repeats his very first phrase, closing the quartet in the same mood of sorrowful resignation with which it opened.
In conclusion, I want to leave us with one final thought to mull over as you experience the performance of Idomeneo, and this is once again a quote and from the writings of Christopher McAteer, who states, Humanity and forgiveness drive the drama of this opera, and in this respect, Idomeneo is an opera of its time. Man is not ruled by gods, but is an individual living life according to his own moral principles. The opera is essentially about the rejection of the old world of subjection and the birth of a new world which offers peace to humanity. This theme of forgiveness is at the heart of the work and transports the ancient Greek myth into the modern cosmopolitan world of Mozart, and it is this distinctly human element of Idomeneo which makes the opera so constantly relevant. That was lecturer, podcast co-host, and Mozart enthusiast Naomi Baratera discussing Idomeneo. For more great opera content, be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms. You can also subscribe to the Met Opera Guild podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next week to talk about Beethoven's Fidelio. I'm Kyle Homewood, and thanks for listening to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.